this morning and with that congregation to begin with turn with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter 29 we're going to be about the word in a number of places we will settle in Mark chapter 7 but let's begin this morning in Deuteronomy 29 And if you would, look at verse 29, Deuteronomy 29, 29. This should be a, an easy one for you to memorize, to commit to memory. And here, the Lord said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Always remember that the secret things belong to God. We as human beings, uh, we are insatiable in our wanting to know the end, obviously, sometimes before the means, and that's not necessarily what God has in store for us. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 10. Look at verse 21. This is the, Luke's record of the 70 returning after they went into the uh, regions of Galilee proclaiming the gospel. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden those, these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. He turned to his disciples, and he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Remember, the world was interrupted when Bethlehem cradled the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would reveal to us Jesus Christ, the great revelation that we need in order to be born again, and the great revelation we need as Christians to live. Teach us this morning that it is important when we are interrupted. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. Now, turn to Mark 7. We're going to settle in Mark 7. We may be about a couple of uh, other passages, but we're going to settle in Mark 7. <clears throat> And first slide, if you would, Mr. Logan. So a question I have for you to begin with this morning. How many of you enjoy being interrupted? Sure. Raise your hand. Do you enjoy being interrupted? No, you don't. 
Do you rejoice when the Lord Jesus interrupts your life? That's what Jesus meant in Luke 10. You should rejoice when you are exposed to these truths that were hidden for thousands of years. So over these next few weeks, we're going to look at these four themes. This morning, the world interrupted. Primarily, we're going to focus on authority. Next Sunday, the words interrogation, focusing on truth. Third Sunday, the words initiative, focusing on salvation. And then we'll close out this series with the worship of the incarnate Christ, and we're going to focus on worship. That's the reason the world was interrupted, to teach us about authority, who has authority, to teach us about truth, who speaks truth, to teach us about salvation, that salvation is not in any other name save Jesus Christ. And finally, once we have appropriated all those three, the word, world was interrupted so that we might learn how to worship as God wants to be worshipped. So, relevant to our understanding of why Jesus is controversial, uh, You'll see in the title block, The Controversial Christ. And so to understand why Jesus is controversial, it requires us to contrast the false image of, uh, of of Christ in the world today and that of Scripture. And there are myriads of illustrations of Christ that are not consistent with Scripture. And... Nowhere is that more prevalent than during Christmas. Last Sunday I reminded you as we were in 1 Peter 4 that Jesus was born as a peasant. He was reared as a carpenter. He became a prophet, a preacher, claiming to be a rabbi, the teacher, and Lord of all. He was full of love and compassion. John Stott wrote, but he was also uninhibited when it came to exposing error and denouncing sin. Love and compassion does not mean that we are swarmy, that we just melt. It means that we use the mind of Christ. And he goes on to say that he especially denounced hypocrisy. And we'll see that in Mark 7 this morning. <coughs> He claimed authority over all, telling them what to believe and do. He did this without any hint of mental imbalance. He was, as we explained last Sunday, the teacher, the primary teacher. He always has been the teacher. Some of you have teachers this morning, and you're great teachers, but you're not the teacher. He was sent from God as Matthew was teaching this morning, utilizing his authority from Scripture with power and grace, and he never hesitated to speak with power and confidence. He came as a servant, but being a servant, 
did not counter his authority. You would imagine that when God is wrong, God speaks, and so that's what Jesus did. His father was wronged, and he spoke. He interrupted the world. Next slide. Because Jesus claimed to be God and is God, not only did he claim to be God, many say that today. Well, Jesus claimed to be God. Yes, he is God. The claims are true. The, the claims are irrevocable. And the claims do not change whether we believe he's God or not. And because he claimed and is God, he's controversial. Now, controversy can be described as a discussion marked especially by the, express, uh, by express, uh, the expression of rather, opposing views. It can also be defined as a dispute. It could also be defined as a quarrel. It could also be defined as strife, and strife and disputes and quarrels and controversy engender stress. Jesus perhaps lived, and I think he did, the most stressful life ever. Now, the babe of Bethlehem constantly debated with the religious leaders of his day. He was constantly debating with his disciples. The world was interrupted by the incarnate Christ from his conception, which was muddled because there were those that would say in the Gospel of John, well, you don't even know who your father is, speaking to Jesus. Controversy at his conception, controversy about his birth, how can a virgin bring forth a child? Controversy during his ministry. You claim to be God. You forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God, also, but, but God only? Controversy at his crucifixion. Controversy that led to his crucifixion. His death, his burial, and of course, resurrection and ascension. His life was marked by controversy. And yet we as believers want to avoid it. <coughs> and the purpose of looking at these over these next few weeks is to be certain that the principles on which Jesus took stands are those that we're still seeking to defend. We don't have a choice in this matter. We're told to defend our Savior and should. To do less is sin. Now, there are two passages of, uh, that provide insight into this controversy, and we, don't turn, we won't need to turn there. We can read these this morning. Sometimes they appear as contradictions. We just sang about Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and in Luke chapter 2, that beautiful passage about Jesus being born in, in the manger and all of the trappings that go with that. Just saying about uh, what child is this? 
And there we find this, these wonderful words, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That was the angel's declaration at the birth of Christ. But Jesus himself in Matthew 10 said this. Do not think I've come to bring peace on the earth. That's controversial. Seems to be contradictory, does it not? I've not come to bring peace, but a soul. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Very controversial. Some of you have experienced this. Because you committed your life and your soul to Jesus Christ, it has caused conflict. Some of you own your job because you occasionally speak a word in the defense of the Lord Jesus Christ. It causes conflict, and it should, because sinners by nature contradict what the word says. That's our nature. It's natural. Next slide. The sword that he speaks of in Matthew chapter 10 is the authority of the Word of God. And it plays out in present-day controversies, and this is obviously not an inclusive list, but four of these. The intolerance of tolerance towards authority. Secondly, the challenges of fidelity to the Word of God within the church. Thirdly, the loss of the centrality of Christ's cross and salvation. The preaching of the crucifixion. It pleased God, Paul wrote, to preach about Jesus' crucifixion. And fourthly, the need for professing believers. And I assume the majority of you this morning are, and I praise God for that. Maybe. Those of you that have tuned in, I trust that you do know the Lord Jesus as Savior. The need for professing believers to learn how to worship according to spirit and truth. To live truth, not just believe truth. Now the world was interrupted 2,000 years ago by the controversial Christ in three ways. He knew the need to confront is urgent, and he never backed down from that urgency. Secondly, he knew the need to confront wisely, and we'll find beginning this morning that he always confronted others with Scripture. And thirdly, he knew the need to confront with grace. Yes, there were times when he was uh, when the Bible says that he cried, that he was loud, very loud. And there were times when he was not. 
At this time of year, we have a popular image of Jesus as the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And of course, as a babe in a manger, that's the one that readily comes to mind. But thankfully, the gospel doesn't stop with Luke 2. It goes on, Luke 3, 4, all the way through chapter 22 and the other gospels. So is that a a valid, is that a true valid image of Jesus? Christ was meek. But from Scripture we learn that meekness is subdued strength. It's not being, it's, it's not acquiescing to every comment or just being quiet or just being fearful to say anything. Christ was not fearful. The only time he didn't say anything when he was taken before Herod Antipas during his trial just prior to his death. That's the only time. Even before Pilate he spoke. From 12 years of age the latter part of Luke 2 until Calvary he himself was confronted uh, and, and confronted the so-called scholars of his day. And we have experts everywhere. Turn on the news, what do you hear? This is the expert on and fill in the blank. In fact, I read a book uh, about three or four years ago uh, entitled, Whatever Happened to Experts? And this particular gentleman went on to write that it seems that everybody today is an expert. Well, we're not. I'm not expert about a myriad of things. We're not. Sometimes we just make things up to make it sound like we're expert. And when Jesus confronted these experts, he often did so with biting, searing questions. He focused on making people think. You have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you, that's authority. Next slide. So let's look at authority just for a moment before we move into Mike, uh, to Mark 7. Now authority is, comes from teaching, comes from position, those, those types of things. Whether we accept what another teaches depends on what we think of their authority. It's been my privilege to be pastor here almost 30 years. I would trust that during that, those 30 years that you have learned about the authority of Jesus Christ. If not, then I have not been a preacher. What do we think of another person that is teaching and about their authority. Make no mistake, years under teaching that is contrary to Scripture. We're going to say this morning that we have two groups of guys, two groups of individuals, Sadducees, Pharisees, that they said they aligned themselves with Scripture, but Jesus seared, especially the Pharisees. 
Years under teaching that is contrary to Scripture will eventually cause even, even professing believers to doubt the Bible's veracity and authority. If we're not in a church that preaches and proclaims the Word of God and Jesus Christ alone, those five solos that lead us to an understanding of who Jesus is, faith alone, grace alone, the Scriptures alone, Christ alone, and God alone deserves the glory. In fact, the, the uh, Sadducees came to him in Matthew chapter 21. It says, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? This is just the retort of a sinner's heart. It's the way sinners think. Now, it's a legitimate question. Although their motives in asking the question were wrong. You can ask a question that's legitimate and still sin in asking the question. And that's what happened in Matthew 21. The question continues to be asked today. How can one possibly know what to believe and who to believe? By what authority did Jesus claim and what authority do we believe what we believe? And teach what we teach. These are genuine, legitimate questions. Whose authority determines the acceptance of certain doctrines and rejects others? And who gave you this authority? So these questions, and many, many of these, obviously in the Gospels, and continue through the epistles of the New Testament. These questions go back even before Christ's time. He goes back to the garden where Satan said, as God said, that's nothing but a question of authority. Has God said? Whose authority determines the acceptance of these doctrines and is, and is authority a matter of opinion? Being Americans, we think, oh, a lot of that is just your opinion. Well, we're looking at Jesus' opinion. So does that mean we can disregard his authority? He certainly had an opinion. We'll see this in just a moment. What does that mean? Is our matter of opinion a construct of uh, um, hegemony? which is just a power structure, hegemony of race or a tribe's view of history. That's what we're told today. We're not allowed to speak because we really don't have the insight of the suffering of all the people. We're looking for moral equivalency. If you're listening, say amen. There is no moral equivalency in this life. For our morality 
is suspect at best. Or are we just looking at one church's confession over against another? We're Baptists. There are reasons we're Baptists. But does that mean that we differ from Catholics? We talked about this a few weeks ago in First Peter and others. Next slide. Is there an objective standard? And that's what you have to come back to. Is there an objective standard by which the church's teaching may be assessed and judged? How do we do that? And has it changed? Well, this is what the church believed for a couple of hundred years, then it changed, then it changed, then it changed, then it changed. No. Jesus Christ. Book of Hebrews says the same yesterday, today, and forever. One of the great attributes of God is his immutability, his never changing. God has not changed. Not, he, he does, it doesn't even enter his mind to change. We change all the time. Is there a final authority that settles disputes? In our country, we have a series of, of uh, uh, courts, and you can begin at one court, and if that finding is not sufficient for you, you can actually appeal it, and according to law, you can take it all the way before our Supreme Court. It stops in the United States at the Supreme Court, but there is judgment that is beyond the Supreme Court. We talked about that last Sunday. Churches assign some degree of authority to Scripture. Some degree. But is Scripture the sole authority? Now these are legitimate questions. So how do you define them? Well, Jesus himself did that. Let's look at Mark 7. <clears throat> Remember now, world interrupted. And Christ is going to interrupt the Pharisees' world Rabidly. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with uh, uh, eat bread with defile, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. You may want to underline a circle, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things, which ought to be circled, which they received in whole, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper, vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? There it is again. But eat bread with unwashed hands. He answered and said to them, and here we go. Well, let me explain this to you. Listen up. We're going to have a dialogue. You know, Jesus says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. Now, Jesus could speak this way because 
he had the Father's authority. As it is written, and he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, the traditions of the elders. And laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things that you do. Remember now, if you look back at verse 4, it says, and there were many other things, and Jesus says, and there are many other things that you prohibit. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Do we do that? Sometimes we do. Because we love our traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may have received from me is Corbin. And we'll explain that in a minute. That is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Making the word of God of no effect through, the, through your tradition which you have handed down. And many such things you do. And then he did something publicly. When he called all the multitudes to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. Pharisees, I'm not going to let you get away with this. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, like those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. How many times have we heard that? And he goes on to explain this, and I'm not going to uh, elaborate on the verses that are following. The thing that you need to remember is this. He denounces them and calls them hypocrites to their face. And then he calls a multitude together to clarify their errant teaching. This is the Jesus that is our Savior. And what a Savior he is. So, in the scripture, contending and controversial sex. Two of them were in the Gospels, rather, Sadducees and Pharisees. I'm not going to talk too much about the Sadducees this morning. We may in subsequent messages, but the Sadducees were the largest and the most liberal of the sects. In fact, in the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court, basically, uh, it was made up of a majority of Sadducees. They denied the resurrection and everything that was supernatural. So Jesus' claim to be God was nothing to them because there was no supernatural God, which is interesting because the Sadducees were Jewish. So they were the agnostics and atheists of the day. Now Jesus criticized the Sadducees for their illiteracy of Scripture. 
and he attributed their error to willful ignorance. In fact, in Matthew 22, we just saw that just a few moments ago, in verse 29, Jesus says, Sadducee, you're wrong. Plain wrong. Jesus was very digital. On, off. Black, white. Why do you think he was crucified? Because of these type of confrontations. He said, you're wrong, guys, because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You're just willfully ignorant. You choose to be ignorant. You do not want to learn. How many people profess Jesus Christ with that in mind to be saved and go into heaven but do not care for the teachings of Jesus? The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the smallest and the most self-righteous of the sects. And that, of course, is who he's confronting here. They did believe in the supernatural. They did believe Scripture. By the way, the Sadducees just held, they, they thought that the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible, were the only things they needed to be concerned with. And essentially, the Pharisees bought into that with the exception of they did think that the remainder of the prophets were important. Now Jesus criticized the Pharisees because their legalistic appeal to tradition, and he says that here, made the word of God no effect, null and void. Do we do that? Yes, we do. I must confess that sometimes I do that. I don't particularly like what I'm reading or what I'm hearing, that Jesus has said, and so I began to construct my own authority. That's why it's important that when we focus on Scripture that we remember that we must always take it in context. And so the passage we're reading here in Mark 7 extends to the Gospel of Mark, extends to the adjacent Gospels, the other synoptics, and the Gospel of John, then into the Acts, the Epistles, all the way through to the general epistles and to the book of Revelation. It must be consistent throughout, and it is. Now, Jesus criticized them because they had a legalistic appeal to, to the tradition of the elders, the tradition of their fathers. You remember this verse? 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers. So Peter was very well aware of it. Peter heard these words. He listened to his Savior. He listened to the Master and his authority. So they had inherited these traditions from the fathers. Now Josephus was a, a Jewish historian that lived in the latter part of the first century and he, we owe a lot of understanding of what occurred in the first century extra-biblically uh, outside of the Bible to Josephus. And he wrote this about the Pharisees. He said the Pharisees had delivered to the people a great many observances which are not written in the law of Moses. 
So there's some structure here. Next slide. The traditions that they're speaking of were handed down orally. Now, oral tradition is, goes all the way back in the Old Testament as well, and that's one of the reasons that God began to move in Moses' heart and the other 39 authors of the Scripture to put it down in black and white because, after all, he's very digital. He likes black and white. They believe that Moses was given these traditions in addition to the law. The oral traditions were not codified in the law of Moses, but they believed that they were. Again, what you're being taught may lead to what you believe, and what you believe may be an error. So they believed in two parallel revelations from God, the written law of Moses and the oral tradition of their fathers. They believed they were equally important and authoritative. Now why? Give you a little bit of history here. About 200 B.C., the fathers of the Pharisees began to take the oral traditions and write them down. They placed them in a series of scrolls called the Mishnah. I've probably mentioned that over a number of years. The Mishnah is divided into six sections with traditions about agriculture. That's what we're seeing here. You're not cleaning. The little lights aren't blinking, Clark. You're not cleaning according to the traditions of your fathers. So that's the first one. Festivals, marriage, civil, criminal, and ceremonial laws. So they took all these old traditions, they wrote them down, placed them in the Mishnah. Now this wasn't enough because you need to have a commentary, and so some of the fathers, the elders of the Pharisees, put together a commentary on the Mishnah that was known as the Gemara. Together, they were placed, and when they're placed together, they're called the Talmud. Now, this didn't happen until about 400 years later, 200 A.D. The Mishnah, the Gemara, the Talmud. And if you study Orthodox Judaism today, while some do prescribe or, or ascribe, rather, to the Old Testament, they will almost always get their direction from the Talmud, which contains the Word of God, but is not the Word of God. Their devotion to the Talmud came from the Targums, okay, a lot of stuff, okay, but you need to understand why they came up with this particular construct. The Targums are the Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament written about the same time as the Septuagint, which was the Greek version. And in the Targums, one of the authors there said, well, God busies himself by day with the study of Scripture and by night with that of the Mishnah. And the Pharisees believed this. They believed the Scriptures are water. The Mishnah is wine, but the Jamera, oh, that's the good stuff. That's spiced wine. 
Now, Jesus interrupted the Sadducees. He interrupted the Pharisees' world. He interrupts our world with his authority. The Sadducees undermine the Old Testament with ignorant readings, and the Pharisees smothered Scripture with their special sauces, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Talmud, adding to the Word of God, making traditions every bit as important as Scripture. Next slide. Now, in these first few verses here, look at verses 3 and 4. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Now, remember, Jesus born in Bethlehem was born in Judea, so he's Jewish. The only other Jewish, pure Jewish disciple was Judas Iscariot. The rest came from Galilee. They were Galileans. Now, they had Jewish backgrounds, but they weren't the pure Jews from Judea like Christ and like Judas Iscariot. So what you see here is the Pharisees and all the Jews, those in Judea. When they came from the marketplace, verse 4, they do not eat unless they wash, which is not a bad thing. I mean, we have these little containers around the church where you can wash your hands. In fact, after I preach, I generally get some, some of that lotion and uh, try to clean my hands before I shake hands with folks. Then after everybody's gone, I do it again so I don't get COVID again, right? All God's people said, kind of weak, isn't it? But you wash your hands. Not a bad thing. And there are many other things which they receive and hold, like the washing of cups, which is good, and the washing of pitchers, copper vessels and couches. Now, couches were typically uh, devices uh, uh, like a, a man purse, whatever that means. <laughs> okay? They clean them. So this regrettable, nothing wrong with the cleansing. It's the binding. The regrettable and ignorant binding of tradition was interrupted by the once cradled Christ. And in Matthew 23, he said of the Pharisees, they bind heavy burdens, they're hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not be moved, will not move them with one of their fingers. So, We've read verse 6. Let's look at it again. He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? And he quotes from Isaiah 29. The Pharisees worshipped, or their worship rather was in vain. It was that of vanity. Because it was superficial. It was covered in self-righteous makeup. It was an affair of the lips and not of the hearts. And basically that's what Jesus says in this passage. So in verses 8 through 13, we have the Lord's take 
on the Pharisees' tradition, or the bonding of tradition. Now, he opposes with Scripture in three areas. Number one, he says Scripture is divine, tradition is human. Secondly, Scripture is essential, tradition is optional. Number three, Scripture is primary and tradition is secondary. So we're going to close out this morning looking at that. When we talk about authority, remember that. So he said the Scripture is divine and tradition human. So, as I said, immediately he confronts the Pharisees with their error. He doesn't let any, and this is, this is the same. Well, you know what this is? It's conviction. Unbelievers are convicted about their sin. Believers are convicted about their sin. This is what the Spirit of God does. It is an immediate thing. We know when we've sinned. We know how we ought to live. And Paul even would write, O wretched man that I am. We know these things. So immediately he, con he confronts them. And he said they believe that the traditions of elders to be to be on par with Scripture. Now, Christ didn't share this view. He's very clear about that. And he draws a sharp distinction between the two. Verse 10, he says, For Moses said, and he quotes obviously from the law here, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. One quote from Exodus 20, the other from Deuteronomy 5. So Jesus quotes from Scripture. Now look at what he says, verse 11. But you say, Moses said, but you say, you elevate yourself over Moses. Or you put Moses on that equivalency horizon. Both cannot be right. One has to trump the other. If you elevate Moses' word, then you have to criticize the word of the elders. And that's what he does. Now, in Matthew's record, and we, don't, we won't turn there this morning, but it, the, this same record is found in Matthew chapter 15. And when Jesus confronts the Pharisees, Matthew says that instead of saying, for Moses said in verse 10, in Matthew 4, 15, 4, Jesus said, my father said. God said. So Moses was the instrument to record what God said. And the Pharisees believed both, obviously. And Christ said emphatically, no, they're not. They are not the same. Next slide. Now, Jesus declares that the only tradition that Scripture recognizes is Scripture itself. The only tradition that Scripture recognizes is Scripture itself. 
Dr. Henry Alford, who was dean at Christ College in Cambridge back in the 19th century, wrote this. Scripture has been God's way of fixing tradition and rendering it trustworthy at any distance of time. In other words, it, if tradition is aligned with Scripture, it's trustworthy. If not, we don't follow it. To be consistent with the controversial babe, we must distinguish between the apostolic tradition of Scripture that delivered to the apostles, that delivered to Moses, and we must distinguish between the, 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 that tradition of Scripture and the ecclesiastical tradition or the teaching of the church. One often is a human construct while the other is divine. So Jesus here makes it clear that Scripture is divine and tradition is human. Secondly, he says here in this passage that authority means that Scripture is essential. Tradition isn't. Tradition is optional. Now to be sure, as you look at this passage, he's not rejecting the cleansing. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't reject all human tradition. <coughs> what he did do was he took traditions and put them in their proper place. This is a tradition. It is not essential. Scripture is. Scripture is essential to your salvation. Tradition, not so much. So, I'll give you an example. This is just one we could cite a lot of. Puritans did not celebrate Christmas. They believed it to be a pagan holiday. And so they did not celebrate it. They thought it was, and it was, a Roman Catholic construct. We've talked about this before. It comes from the pagan feast Saturnalia. Does this mean they were more in line with Scripture than Zachary? or less? Well, the answer is neither. If they choose to do that, that's quite all right. <coughs> but they don't take, they didn't take that tradition and impose it on others. Therefore, if we elevate the Christmas season to a necessary tradition, And we're taking a human expectation and we're making it authoritative. Should we celebrate the birth of Christ? Yes. But we must remember that the birth of Christ brought forth a world that was interrupted by this adult Christ. Now verse 11 and 12, we've already looked at part of it and we talk about Corbin here, but you say if a man says to his father or mother, whatever prophet you may have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift from God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother in making the word of God of no effect, making the word of God of no effect through your traditions, which you've handed down. And many such things that you do. So Christ declared that doing so was making the word of God ineffective. It has no authority because you've made everything else an authority. And so now everything has a moral equivalency. 
smacks of making traditions essential to salvation, and they're not. Next slide. Now, the word Corbin, Aramaic word, the keeping of vows to God, and that's what he says, Jesus says here, which the law stated were to be kept. If you make a vow to God, you have to keep it. The Pharisees display scripture and were themselves the moral judges over the disciples, imposing certain practices and prohibiting others. Look at verse 2 just for a moment. I want some clarification. Verse 2 just for a moment. Now when they saw some of the disciples, not all of them, some of the disciples eat bread with defile, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. So some of them didn't eat and others did. So they're picking now, being picky. They gave permission and they withheld it in matters that God had not given to them. Now, when we look at this, Jesus never corrects his disciples. Never. One of the few times in Scripture where this happens. Jesus would correct them if they were off base, but not here. He's pretty relaxed about the whole thing. And he's God the Son. What he resisted and what he condemned was the imposition of traditions over and above the clear truth of the Bible. Thirdly, he says that authority means that Scripture is primary and that tradition is secondary. Let's talk a little more about Corbin. We'll bring this to a close. Corbin was a, a monetary gesture. Generally, you were you would, in the Old Testament, you would say, I can't make tithes now of my income because my harvest has not yet come in. But I will make a vow to the Lord, which is carbon, which is Corbin, which says that when my harvest comes in, I can tithe. Now, if you made the vow, generally it was made in a synagogue or before witnesses. So all of this was passed along. And it could be vowed to identify things which may be done in the future, just like the illustration that I used. Now, if you made this designation, it could not be diverted for another purpose, similar to an irrevocable trust that you may have today. That money has to be used for that. That's the law. It's legal. Legal and binding. The vow became absolutely binding and authoritative. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. In context, a son may make a vow that some gift that he's going to give to the synagogue or to the Lord, whatever, is Corbin. And the Pharisees declared, now here's the thing. Remember now, the Pharisees, Sadducees, all of these guys were involved in the temple. And the Pharisees said, well, you have made the vow before others 
and you're going to give money to the synagogue and you can't change your mind even if you need to divert the money to your parents. We do not care that they may be on their deathbed or they may be indigent and cannot take care of themselves. You made the vow. And that's what Jesus is saying. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. He said this is in violation of what Moses wrote in verse 10. So scripture is primary, not the Corbin. This is the position that the Lord Jesus made. Next slide. Christ simply said this is wrong. The law in verse 10 is primary and it clearly commands that you take care of your parents because it taught, calls out how you honor them and it calls out how you curse them. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy 5, it goes far as to demand death to those that do not take care of their parents. Wow. A lot of capital punishment in the Old Testament. Scripture is always essential. It's always primary. But tradition can be optional. Those that are not in conflict with Scripture, talking about traditions, those that are not in conflict with Scripture, or they can be secondary, those that are clearly in conflict with Scripture, which is the Corbin that he was calling out here. Use Scripture. And so we read, he retorted with, have you not read and what is written in the law? He is basically saying what is written and may be read, that is the teaching of scripture, must be what settles every dispute. This is the responsibility of the church. not personal preferences or traditions, scripture. So in summary this morning, let's look at it this way. Jesus interpreted the Sadducees, or interrupted rather, the Sadducees and Pharisees because he taught that scripture is divine, that scripture is essential, that scripture is primary. If it was for him, how much more so for us? He affirmed that the Bible does not need to be supplemented by binding traditions, whatever they may be. Whatever our moms and dads did, grandmoms, grandpops, so forth and so on. The traditions of the fathers, traditions of the elders. Why do you elevate these to that of Scripture? Sometimes we do that. I can't come to church on Mother's or Father's Day because my mother and father is dead and I have to I have to think about them during that day. That's a binding tradition. Binding tradition. We come to the Lord's house to worship him. That's why we come. We'll talk about worship in a few Sundays here. 
Jesus believed the scripture to be the su supreme authority about which all traditions must be judged. Tradition is the word of the of fallible, depraved human beings. But scripture is the word of God. I'll close with this. Three traditions left the church. And I use the word traditions in parentheses. Once a person is born again, they need to be obedient in believer's baptism. Scripture, primary, not your tradition. Secondly, Lord's Supper. It follows that once you've made a profession of faith and followed the Lord in baptism, you partake of the Lord's Supper. And thirdly, discipleship. If we cover these, we find that we have lived according to the Great Commission. Being born again, being obedient to baptism, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and growing to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 7, when Jesus finishes teaching on the mount, the word says, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Has Jesus interrupted your life? He can this morning. He wants to this morning. And you will leave here not only with an interrupted life, but with a life that will never be the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the word. We thank you for the direction. We thank you that the world was interrupted when Jesus came on the scene and spoke with authority, not as the scribes of the Sadducees or the Pharisees or, or any other ecclesiastical monarch. And so may we understand that when we talk about Scripture alone, Father, that it, is, it stands alone. We do pray, Father, for those that are here that may not know Jesus as Savior. May they understand that this same Jesus, obviously, that, that um, uh, excoriated the Pharisees is the same one that was crucified in order that they might have forgiveness of sins. He is meek, but he is the precious Son of God who loves his grace.